Let us now turn for our scripture reading to uh, the book of Hebrews, chapter 2. Our text is verse 11 this morning, but our understanding of our our text uh, requires uh, an attention to its context. And uh, that means we pay careful attention to this whole chapter together. Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, and was confirmed to us by those who heard him, God also bearing witness, both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. For he has not put the world to come of which we speak in subjection to angels, but one testified in a certain place, saying, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you take care of him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, and set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet." For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not yet see all things put under him, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he by the grace of God might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him for whom are all things and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly I will sing praise to you. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, here am I and the children whom God has given me. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For indeed he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore, in all things he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, our attention and focus this morning is especially on these wonderful words of verse 11. He is not ashamed to be called their brethren, or to call them brethren, rather. He, that is our Lord Jesus Christ, is not ashamed to call us uh, brothers and sisters. Of course, sisters is included in this language of brethren. The same one, the same one whom First Colossians uh, describes, or Colossians 1 describes as the one for whom all things were made. And 
through whom all things were made and in whom all things consist. So that he uh, is uh, same in his divine nature as the one for whom are all things and by whom are all things, as we read in verse 10. This one, this eternal Son of God, this one of whom uh, the previous chapter says that he laid the foundations of the earth, this one of whom the Father says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. This one says of us, my brothers, my sisters, it's not beneath his dignity to own such a close relationship with us. And he wants us to know of it. He wants us to know of this near and dear relationship that he has with us. Because as we'll see, this relationship is really at the heart of the gospel. And much of our comfort depends upon understanding something of it and believing in such wonderful grace that is proclaimed in this relationship he has with us. Christ became one with us for our salvation. And we're going to look at the meaning of that oneness, beginning with the fact that it is a oneness of nature. That is, he is one with us in our nature, our human nature. Both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one. That's, that's the language of, of origin. We are of one origin with Christ. And this is more than a likeness or a sameness of nature. You know that God could have created the human nature of Jesus Christ out of nothing. He could have given him a human nature that really has no actual ancestry among human beings that actually has no physical uh, connection with any other human being. But our Lord Jesus was conceived and formed in the womb of the Virgin Mary, uh, from whom he derived his flesh and blood from her very body. He was the seed of David. He shared that same blood, uh, which Acts uh, 11, verse 26 speaks, that blood by which God made all the nations of the earth. The same blood uh, flowed through his veins that flows through the veins of uh, European or British Caucasians or uh, dark-skinned Africans or, or Asians or Latinos. And of course, we could go through the whole list, Native Americans and Japanese the same kind of blood which courses through the bodies of human beings throughout this world course through the veins of our Lord Jesus. Luke traces his ancestry to Adam, that first man, from whom, along with Eve, every living person is literally, physically derived. And as he traces Jesus' ancestry to Adam, uh, we discover saints and sinners, those who were brought to uh, saving knowledge of God and those who were not. And we find the literal descendants of Abraham, but we also find Gentiles, 
Ruth, the Moabitess, for example. Rahab, the harlot, who was incorporated among the people of God. Jesus' ancestry is traced all the way to Adam. And except for sin, Christ shared every human feature. In all things, he had to be made like his brethren. Of course, except for sin. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same flesh and blood, like us. And that means that he experienced life through human senses of sight and smell and touch and hearing, uh, the same way that we do. And his body experienced comforts and pleasures. He enjoyed the comfort of being cuddled by his mommy. He knew the comforts of a, of a warm bed. He knew the pleasures of good, of good food and, and physical exercise. And he knew the discomforts and the pains that are common to our humanity. He shivered in the cold and he sweated in the hot sun. And he felt distress and fears and happiness and anger. Yes, his emotional life was sinless. But that doesn't mean that it was flat. That doesn't mean that he was robotic. His, his character and his holiness was not angelic. It was human. And he didn't come like an angel to save fallen angels. But he became human in order to save fallen sinners. Except for sin, he shared every human characteristic. He became one with us, with a oneness of nature. He became one with us as our covenant representative. Paul in 1 Timothy 2 says, There is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man. The man, Christ Jesus. Now we know that Jesus Christ is true man and at the same time, without mixture or confusion of natures, he remains true and eternal God. But Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, very deliberately and emphatically identifies him as the man. Because as our mediator, his manhood was just as essential and necessary to bring us to God as his divine power and holiness. He represents us in his true manhood. And only as such does he serve as a go-between, as a mediator to bring us back into fellowship with God. He assumed our nature on a saving mission. He is the captain of our salvation, bringing many sons to glory as we read in verse 10. He entered into a solidarity with us by his incarnation. But it wasn't to share in a general kind of brotherhood of man. But rather he took upon our nature as the, as the redeemer with its Old Testament roots and meaning also of that term as the kinsman redeemer. In many instances we read of the Goel, the, the kinsman, one who takes upon himself the responsibilities and acts on behalf of a near blood relative to deliver them from some plight, to rescue them perhaps from slavery, to take upon himself their 
their debts. And that's the background also for understanding our Lord Jesus Christ as our kinsman, as our close relative who took upon human flesh on our behalf to deliver us, to rescue us from the greatest plight, to pay our debts, to redeem us by His blood. And that means also that his brethren are not just people in general. They are described as children in verse 14, as sons, verse 10, as those who are being sanctified, who share in Christ's work as the sanctifier. It describes his brethren as those whom he came to cleanse from their sin and bring back to the service of God as a sanctified people, as prophets, priests, and kings who are purged from their sins and restored to that position as holy ones in the presence of God. He became one with us to take our place. He was joined to those who had fallen from the image of God, who were under the sentence of death. He took on flesh and blood in order to suffer in the flesh and to shed his blood. Verse 14 is very emphatic on that point, isn't it? Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death. He came to suffer, being tempted in our place, and to overcome temptation, unlike Adam. He came to be perfected through suffering, to make propitiation for sins, to offer that atoning sacrifice by which the wrath of God against us and our sin is appeased, satisfied. He came to experience in body and soul that awful severance of body and soul by death. That's what death is. It's that unnatural separation of body and soul contrary to that wholeness and unity of our nature as created by God. But he came under the sentence of death and experienced that unnatural, frightening, awful severance of our souls from our bodies. And he did so in order to deliver us from fear of that. He came to call us brothers and sisters at great cost to himself. He is one with us, sharing our nature. He is one with us as our representative. And in that we see Amazing love and grace, wonderful comfort and assurance. Consider the infinite condescension of the eternal Son of God in taking upon himself our flesh and blood. You know, I looked up this word condescension just out of curiosity, and I have a contemporary dictionary beside my uh, desk, and I, I looked up this entry, and it, it said something like, to act as if beneath your dignity. 
as if beneath your dignity. That's, that's the, was the language. And the second entry was to treat one another in a patronizing way. Well, that's really a negative definition of condescension as something fake. I consulted an older dictionary and it said to come down voluntarily, to be gracious. You know, sometimes uh, dictionaries reflect uh, the change of ideas and connotations to words. And sometimes good old words that had a very powerful meaning have been corrupted by modern usage. And that's worked its way into modern dictionaries. The condescension of the Son of God is a wonderful thing that proclaims the riches of God's grace and mercy. It wasn't fake. It wasn't in pretense. Our Lord is not patronizing us by saying, My brethren, He became one with us. He became brother to us. And He came brother to us from infinite heights of glory. Oh yes, He remains true and eternal God. In that sense, He did not become man as if He became someone other than God. He remains God. That that only enhances the wonder of how His divinity is veiled and how His manifest glory was obscured in His humiliation and how... He humbles himself, you might say, not by subtraction, not by taking away anything from his divine being and glory, but by addition, by taking to himself our nature, to be joined with our nature forever. Infinite condescension, and yet he owns this relationship. My brethren, he says, we might think of uh, Joseph as a type of Christ in this way. Remember Joseph exalted, second in command over all Egypt. And his brothers came, and yes, for a time he made himself strange to them. But then he disclosed himself to them, not privately. He didn't say, okay, keep this under wraps, okay? You know, shepherds are an abomination to Pharaoh, and I don't really want the word to get out that I'm related to you. No, he brought them before Pharaoh. And he made sure they had part of the best of the land, the land, these despised shepherds. Joseph, in his exalted glory, owned them as his brothers, not secretly. Now, sometimes people can do that, right? They have a, a close relationship with someone that might be of a different rank with them and yet might be related by blood. And in certain circumstances, they would acknowledge them, but they really don't want it to be so public. Yes, you're my friend, but I'm not going to hang around you when others are around. No, the Lord Jesus Christ claims this relationship. Now in his exaltation, in a while we're going to read from Psalm 22 where uh, verse 12 is taken, and that's in the latter part of this psalm that speaks of the, the exalted glory of the one who has so suffered as described in that psalm. I will declare your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. Among the thronging worshipers, Jehovah will I bless. Among my brethren gathered there, his name will I confess. Every time we sing that song, by the way, we should think of our Lord Jesus Christ because that's how Hebrews gives us to understand this description 
of our Lord Jesus as leading the worship of God's people present among them. It's a term actually that Jesus uses after his resurrection when he told Mary, go to my brethren and tell them, I ascend to my father and your father, to my God and your God. It's a relationship that he will claim before the world on the day of judgment, a relationship with the most insignificant Christians, obscure, unknown. If you've given food or drink to Christian brothers or sisters or visited them in prison or in other ways, the Lord Jesus says, inasmuch as you have done it unto the least of these, my brethren, you've done it unto me. He not only owns the relationship, he identifies so closely with the least Christian that an act of love and service performed to them is something that the Lord Jesus takes very personally. And Jesus is glorified by this humility and by this love that he manifests. For stooping so low to us, uh, he doesn't, he doesn't lose our respect, but we exalt and magnify him all the more. He calls us brothers and we call him our master and Lord. He says, my brethren, and we say to him and of him, my God and my king. It was interesting. I believe it's uh, William Perkins in commenting on this. He answered the question, because Christ is not ashamed to call us brethren. Do we call him brother? Is that the language of our prayer? And he says, oh, no, no. It's the wonder of his condescension that admits us into this relationship. But he remains our master. Yes, he is our elder brother, and we're taking great comfort in that. But the way we honor his exalted majesty is not to uh, become familiar in such a way as to obscure the wonder of that majesty revealed in his condescension. There, there might be an earthly analogy to this. Maybe uh, you know someone, I know someone, I could think of him right now, I'm not going to name him, but I've always known him as having an office in a position that was uh, weighty and significant, and I always called him by uh, that title of office and position. And uh, he's on first a first-name basis with me and speaks very familiar to me, and I to him, but I just can't kind of bring myself to call him by his first name. Now, maybe that's a small kind of example. But the condescension and grace of our Lord Jesus to Christ, of Christ in calling us brethren leads us to magnify him all the more and to worship him. And here we see how God comes to us and not we to him. There's no greater demonstration of divine love or encouragement to, to turn to him than the fact of God manifested in the flesh. We do not climb our way to God. God comes to us in the most intimate and marvelous way in the infant child that was born in Bethlehem. 
and the one who took our place to be our Savior, to be joined with us forever. And here, brothers and sisters, we find comfort in our sorrows and in our sins and trials. You know that the thought of of God's divine majesty may may humble and convict us, and properly so, yes. But it could also make us afraid to come to him. Or it might make us think of him as distant and unmoved by our troubles. But the thought of Christ, one with us, should move us to expect his mercy and tenderness as one who knows us with compassion and with sympathy. And we do not properly honor him without that kind of trust of which we are encouraged. He was made like unto his brethren that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, in that he himself has suffered being tempted. He is able to aid those who are tempted. And that should be a great source of consolation and comfort to us in our weaknesses, in our confusions and troubles, and yes, in our sins. Because he came to be one with us, to make propitiation for our sins, and knows what it's like to be tempted, not in such a way as to sin, but to be able to relate to temptation and to be compassionate towards those who do sin when they're tempted. Here we see the grace displayed before us at his table because that flesh and blood that he took upon himself is our food and drink unto eternal life. By believing upon him and receiving him unto ourselves by faith as our life, exercised as we actually eat bread and drink wine, we are given tokens whereby to be assured that he gave himself entirely for us, that we are of his bones and of his flesh, and that he nourishes us truly and spiritually with himself. Well, here, brothers and sisters, let us also find motivation, the motivation of love to honor him, to honor him by, by our confession. He is not ashamed to call us brethren, Let's not be ashamed to call him our, our Savior and, and Lord. He is not ashamed of us, but he will be ashamed of those who are ashamed of him and his word on the day of judgment. You can read about that in Luke chapter 12. Let us honor him by confessing his name before the world. Let us honor him by our obedience to him. Let's treasure this relationship also by, by keeping his word. Remember what Jesus uh, said to those who interrupted him as he taught them, saying, your, your mother and your brothers are here. They want to talk to you. And Jesus says, he who does the will of my heavenly father, he is my, my mother, my sister, my brother. He claims that close relationship also to those then who honor his word and do the will of his Father, and let us then so honor him by showing the reality of that intimate relationship we, we have with our God and Savior. Amen.